Hi, and welcome to the Identity North podcast. Identity North is Canada's premier identity community. At our conferences, we bring together Canadian and global leaders to share the big ideas and innovations that are shaping the global digital economy. I'm Aaron Hamilton, your host and the chair of Identity North. We have three goals at IDN. We want to educate, connect key players, and to promote Canadian innovations and organizations. We want Identity North to be the platform to discover and explore the big questions, innovations, and ideas shaping the digital economy here in Canada and around the world. Digital ID and authentication are ultimately the foundation for a digital economy. All of our interactions, our transactions, and our online lives depend on the creation of robust, secure, and scalable systems that allow us to prove who we are online. Guests will include leaders from both the public and the private sector, with a focus on Canadian leaders working at home and abroad. You can subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you download your podcasts. Connect with us online on Twitter at Identity North or via email at info at identitynorth.ca. In this podcast, I wanted to go back to one of the very first teams that I told about my vision for how important digital identity was going to be. In 2010, I was working as the VP of Strategy and Partnerships at Endstream, and we were getting nowhere. I had spent two years trying to help the big phone companies, the telcos, to launch mobile payments, and we had almost nothing to show for it. We could not figure out how to work with the banks, and the banks Well, they controlled the consumer's bank accounts, and therefore they controlled the root of all payments in Canada. Just before I gave up and left Endstream, I decided that I owed it to the board of directors to explain my vision of the only path forward. The way that I saw it, the banks control payments in Canada and would continue to do so for the foreseeable future. But there are a lot of other types of transactions that we could support that didn't require the banks to play along, and that meant learning about something completely new, digital credentials. Fast forward almost 10 years, and I'm thrilled to be talking to Robert Blumenthal, the Chief Identity Officer at, you guessed it, Endstream. Thanks for having me here. So, talk to us a little bit about Endstream. Not everyone knows who Endstream is, so who is Endstream and what are you doing in identity and authentication services? So, Endstream uh, is a joint venture of uh, Canada's national phone companies, Bell, Rogers, and Telus. Now, we have access to uh, real-time information about mobile subscribers. And as the world goes more digital, more mobile, being able to protect your accounts, particularly on mobile, or using your mobile device as a way to secure your accounts is a very valuable capability. So a number of years ago, again, as our shareholders, our partners uh, came together with this notion, we began launching a number of services and and are now in market with a variety of services for identity verification, verifying name, address, and phone number, as well as account takeover protection, verifying that your mobile device belongs to you and that as you use it for online services, in fact, is the same device now as it was the last time you accessed them. So very important to protect your accounts. So Endstream is a joint venture between the three national phone carriers here in Canada. And talk to me about the way that they've set this up. So I'm assuming this is not one big honeypot of one big database of combined between the three companies. This is about 
creating a common way of working with the three carriers. Correct. So Endstream is, is, um, does not have a honeypot of data. We don't hold any customer data any longer than is required to process it for supporting our services. The data is held at each of the telcos in their customer relationship management systems, CRM systems, and so we are really acting as a real-time services aggregator uh, on and for them in the marketplace. So why do the carriers want to get into identity? Well, I think there's recognition that, first of all, any one of them would be unsuccessful by themselves. If you have only a third of the market, it's not that compelling as a data set. Uh, But together, having over 90% of the country is actually pretty valuable. And then secondly, they, like everybody else, have the same problems around verifying their own customers in their own services online. Now, they have the additional benefit that when you use their mobile phones, they can validate that you are who you say you are because you're on their network. Now, uh, you're not always on their network. Sometimes you're on Wi-Fi. Sometimes you're out of country. And so they need these additional services to help them. Now, in recognizing the value to themselves, they've also recognized that this could be valuable to other people. And so that's really the genesis of the identity verification services industry. So it sounds like what you're saying, Robert, is because we're, you know, most of us are using one of the big three uh, phone carriers, and we've got these phones in our pockets all the time, that this is a tool that could be used either as an as a employee of one of those companies or as a consumer. Well, absolutely. And, and by the way, this is not just a Canadian issue. Globally, um, companies, online services have recognized that mobile devices are uh, very powerful tools for not only uh, interacting with their services, but also as ways to authenticate users because of the information that can be gleaned by the mobile operators on their behalf to prove that people are who they say they are when interacting with services. Let's talk about an example. What would be an opportunity for me to use a telco to authenticate myself? Well, so just think about, uh, I would say, two major use cases. First is around enrolling with a new account. You use your phone or even online and on a big screen, you say, hey, I'm Aaron Hamilton. I I live at this address. But actually, anybody on the planet could add in your information online and uh, you have no idea that they're doing that. So how would the telco help out? Well, so if you're doing it from your phone, we can actually validate that that phone belongs to the same person who's putting in that information. Okay. Because we have that information on file. Perfect. For most customers. Online, uh, we can actually send a message to your phone to have you interact to say, yes, I'm applying for this online service, and check that the name and address match with the information that you put online. So it really deals with this upfront identity theft problem by protecting consumers based on possession and control of their mobile device. I'm on my iPad or on my computer, and I'm trying to create a new account, and so a ping could be sent to my phone that says, hey, are you trying to do this transaction and verify who you are on the phone? Exactly right. And is this taking place in other parts of the world or in Canada right now all, today? All over the world, in, in various forms. Some markets are more sophisticated than others. Uh, interesting enough, some of the more underdeveloped countries have leapfrogged past some of the developed countries in things like mobile payments and mobile, mobile services because they're mobile-first environments rather than internet-first environments. Now, having said that, I'll go back to the other use case. Very importantly is when you interact with an online service with a particular device, you prove that you are who you say you are. The next time you interact, you want to make sure it's the same person. 
So again, we can provide those additional features. You've heard about people doing device fingerprinting and other things. They check your IP address, they check other things. So we're adding another layer of protection beyond that, which is an IP address goes to a home or a business, but a mobile phone goes, uh, a mobile number goes to a particular device held by a particular person, one-to-one -one mapping. And so that's where we can add in not just identity verification, but account takeover protection. So when you are interacting with an online service, you get the comfort that your service access is protected by these additional features, and the online service is has a higher level of assurance that you are who you say you are. So it's both to the benefit of the online service and to the benefit of the consumer. So I would think then this is something that I as a consumer might start to pay for or the service providers that I'm using might want to opt into offering in order to kind of protect both of us. Correct. And so generally speaking, it's the online service who's interested in, in protecting their accounts because they have some other commercial relationship with you as an end user. And so it's part of their cost of doing business and getting value out of you as a customer. On the other hand, we do see models with things like um, password keepers and, and other um, security-related applications, VPN services on phones or what have you, where consumers are paying certain amounts to increase the level of security that they have and improve their comfort level as it relates to interacting with online services. It seems that fraud is one of those things we're hearing a lot more about, and identity fraud is actually you know, something that people are getting more and more aware of and probably a little bit afraid of. Um, there's, you don't have to look too far to find a headline around those topics. So I could see a really big play for decreasing fraud and identity fraud. Um, are there actually opportunities for creating whole new services though? Because it strikes me that there are whole new types of businesses that couldn't have existed before, either for the cost of rolling out or just the cost of service delivery. There are many services, certainly in the financial services sector or in the governmental sector or others, where you can't enroll without actually having to go to a physical point of presence somewhere. Because we have very weak digital online identity verification. And I say that that's here in Canada. I would say North America is like that. Other markets have more advanced capabilities where you can in fact use either a security card, a token, a mobile device as a way to verify your identity because there have been some pre-enrollment. This is not unlike in the credit card business. When you enroll for a credit card, they check you out when you sign up. They verify that you are who you say they are. You're attached to a credit card. Now you can go anywhere in the world with your card and make a payment. The merchant actually doesn't need to know who you are. They're trusting the payment credentials because the security around that payment credential is strong and that the issuing bank is now providing essentially approvals that you can make a purchase. The same thing holds in the identity world. The end state ultimately is where you will enroll with some form of identity that proves that you are who you say you are and then you'll have some tool likely based on your mobile phone that will allow you to present yourself to online services in a secure manner. That's really the end goal here of moving identity from you know basically uh, proving that you are who you say you are everywhere you go all the time to doing it once upfront and being able to have a much more frictionless experience in all your online services. I want to come back to that in a second because I can actually see, you're right, I've heard stats that say that I might forget my wallet at home and decide to go through the day without my wallet, but that if I accidentally forget my phone, I'm going to turn around and go back. So I want to talk a little bit more uh, in a second about 
you know, where's the phone going is that one thing that we always have with us. But for now, let's focus, I wanna go back a little bit because it seems that you know, some of the use cases that you've talked about sound a lot like those SMS one-time passcodes that we've kind of seen in the market. So isn't that good enough? That's a great question. Um, you know, Canada has actually been a, a pretty late adopter of second factor authentication and the, the most popular of which is using an SMS one-time passcodes and everyone's seeing them now in a whole variety of services. You get a text message to your phone, it gives you a code, you have to type it into the online service. So it's better than having nothing, but it's fraught with all kinds of things. You've closed the door somewhere, but they've now opened a window uh, for fraudsters on everything from SMS takeover, uh, boomeranging that SMS to another party who is taking over your account, as well as you know the man-in-the-middle attacks because you're putting your password into the same screen as you're putting in your one-time passcode. So if you have a, a fake website, they got them both. So that you've actually done nothing to protect yourself. So you know, really, uh, SMS one-time passcodes, I say, is a good step forward, but there's l lots of new issues that, that bring up with it. I'm seeing headlines around spoofing of phones and phones actually being cloned and, and that being a way to increasing problem with around SMS one-time passcodes. Is this another challenge that is going to hit you know the work that you're doing at Endstream, or are you actually going to be able to solve this problem? Well, we we know uh, certainly of late with uh, SMS one-time passcodes having been deployed by some of the major banks in Canada in the last 12 months. We're getting calls regularly and are beginning implementations to support what is called SIM swap fraud, which is precisely where someone has taken over your account and getting your SMS passcodes. So that that's. You know, I would say the predictable result of the deployment of SMS one-time passcodes, and you know that's actually good for us as a business, but also we have services to help with that. That said, you know, like everything in security, it's all about layers. So one factor is not as good as two factors is not as good as three factors. So when we think in our future view and our evolution of our services, when we think about authenticating users, we think about multi-factor authentication, using information about the device, using crypto credentials on the device, using the mobile network uh, authentication, using uh, a variety of other biometric or other tools to help verify that you are who you say you are. You first enroll with a service and then when you use it on an ongoing basis. And so this layered multi-factor authentication approach is really the direction of best practices um, and ideally if it can be deployed in a way that's simple and easy to use, easy to get, that's where you have a winning value proposition. So that goes exactly to where my brain was headed as far as, you know, this needs to be a lot more simple than the way that we're discussing because you and I are kind of banning about a lot of, you know, long words and complicated theories. How simple is Endstream going to be able to make this or is the market going to be able to make this so that we can adopt these you know, I don't want to adopt technology, I want to adopt a, a use case or a scenario. Right. The, the way it stands right now is, is, you know, every online service has its own passwords, right? So you as a user have 301 passwords. And the current direction is most of these services in isolation is looking to enhance 
each one of their authentication mechanisms. They're all doing it a different way. So you're going to have 301 different ways that will be enhanced. So that's why you're seeing some are using passcodes, some are using apps, some are using whatever. The end state might actually be 301 different apps that you have to authenticate yourself to those 301 different services. That's uh, you know, I'll, I'll use the credit card analogy. That's like back in the day when you got your the first diner's credit card or or worked at one store and not another, and you ended up having a stack of credit cards, each of which worked only at one retailer. The model is, is upside down, and really the, the end state really needs to go to where a single entity can prove your identity up front, and uh, then you are issued a credential that you can use online in many different places. And that's really when, when we think about what we're doing for Endstream. Right now, we're supporting people in their existing authentication mechanisms to help increase the level of assurance based on what they already have and incrementally improving that. But we are working towards what we think is a mass market, uh, broad uh, service and solution that will, uh, will be mobile-based because that is the most pervasive, secure thing that people have in their pockets. It's the thing that they remember to go return home to get if they forget more than anything else. Uh, and then based on that, being able to have a solution that really works like the universal credit card for identity. So I like what you're selling here. Talk to me about the types of organizations that are using your services and what they're using it for. Great. Without mentioning specific names, uh, we, we have uh, major financial services companies, uh, both uh, based here in Canada as well as some multinationals that are using our KYC services, uh, know your customers, so this is really a, a name address date of birth matching uh, service to help uh, in the, not just um, enhancing the level of assurance when enrolling a new customer, but also meeting regulatory compliance around uh, anti-money laundering regulations. You need to have multiple data sources in some cases. So you guys are a qualified source a, of data. We are what, what in the regulatory terms is known as a independent, reliable data source for identity verification. And it's independent because it's not based on a credit bureau. It's not based on anything else. It's based on when you got your cell phone in a store at some point, you went and presented photo ID or whatever it is. We've checked out who you are and that now establishes a new account. If you think about when you open up a bank account, often they ask you for a driver's license and a utility bill to prove you know, who you are and um, your, your address of residency has to be current stuff. So that's the same idea. Now in our services, of course, because we're accessing real-time information on a one-to-one -one basis for individual cell phone users, it's more up-to-date than what could be a, a Photoshopped utility bill you brought into a bank. So that's one set of services. So financial institutions are using it. We have some lending companies using it. In another category, we do support uh, with everything's permission-based location services for transportation and roadside assistance. You know, these are valuable. Your, your car breaks down. Where are you? I have no idea. We can find where you are and with your permission and provide that to the uh, roadside assistance company. Because the cell phone provider knows exactly where the you are. network knows. Right. <laughs> right. And then the, the account takeover protection type services is is uh, really using mobile number or a tokenized identity based on the mobile number uh, when you first use a mobile app to then uh, or a mobile service. We
we, you, you can collect that number and then validate every time that the user is accessing your service, you can validate that this device is the same device. It's like using SMS one-time passcodes, except it's what I would describe as silent authentication. It's in the background, there's no uh, intrusive experience that you know some people can't figure out how to use. It happens in the background very cleanly. And it comes with things like um, what we call integrity scores. You know, has this phone uh, been changed in the last 30, 60, 90 days? Has the SIM been swapped? Uh, uh, how long has your account been active? Is it Was it activated yesterday or was it activated 10 years ago? All yeah. those things help improve the level of confidence that an online service would have about you as a, as a customer. What, you mentioned a, a key term there. I think that it's worth diving into a little bit more. And you mentioned about permission. Yes. So talk to me about the nature that the telcos are working on with these, all these different organizations to help augment their services with or without my permission. So uh, Canada's privacy legislation is pretty clear about not um, any party um, providing information of a personal nature to any third party without that end user's consent. And so in all of our services, where there is an exchange of personal information, such as a mobile number or your name and address or something, we ask our, our customers, meaning our, our, uh, the online services, as part of their service terms or what have you, they have to collect the consent. And in the context of financial services in particular, um, you know, the, the guidance that, that we have and that we adhere to is that you know, when you apply to an online product, uh, online uh, financial service, um, you know, it's reasonable to assume that they may check your identity and your credit and everything else with other financial services organizations or a credit bureau because that's really the norm. It's not obvious that the UA would check with other parties like your phone company or, or some other data source. So that's where consent becomes important. It's not, an, uh, it's not a, a big barrier. All of the customers that we have have updated their terms of service. It's really a very minor change to the consent that they're already collecting uh, around accessing third-party uh, data providers. It now includes language to include telecommunications providers as one of those data sources, and then we're good to go. So, but consent really is an important thing here. It strikes me that there are some services that you might be able to provide in certain provinces that you couldn't provide in other services. So actually being right on the border, you, like you guys really need to kind of watch those things. And quite frankly, consent is going to be a, an important part of this. So talk to me a little bit about how you manage the location data and my consent. So in the context of locations information, which is particularly sensitive, I think most people agree with that. And notwithstanding the fact that they're, they seem very free to share their location on their cell phones to people like Google Maps and, and Uber and pick your favorite food delivery service. They, they know more about where you are than you probably do half the time. So notwithstanding that, because we're not actually using any mobile app on your device, we're, we're, there's in fact no software required on your phone to use our location service. It all comes from the network. Their consent is required. So um, in the context of roadside assistance or transportation examples for package tracking, uh, consent is collected from the end user. We require that that consent be collected regularly if there's an ongoing location tracking. If it's on a one-time basis, every time it's being asked for, you're asked for consent. So it's, we're pretty strict about that one because location is particularly sensitive and this is really only for a, a very 
specific approved use cases where uh, um, you know consent is collected in a proper fashion. So we've talked a, a little bit about how Canada has been maybe lagging in certain parts of the country with regard to digital identity services, but specifically the use of telco for, for identity services. Can you talk to us about where you're most excited, where Canada is leading the charge, and some of the things that you think are really exciting about what's happening in the identity ecosystem now in Canada? Canada, I think, is leading as a thought leader, uh, not just in Canada, but internationally as it relates to trust frameworks and collaboration between the private and public sector in the context of identity uh, and authentication. You know, the, the work being done by a number of companies, uh, a number of uh, government and uh, other organizations to bring together, including Identity North, uh, bring together people in, in forums to discuss and debate and, and move forward the dialogue to implement services is very, very important. Canada lags slightly, is more a function of North America having um, no real strong identity uh, infrastructure, um, unlike, say, Europe or now parts of Asia and Africa, where governments have taken significant leadership positions based on original birth records and the like to, ex to ensure and ex expose this information and uh, allow for identity verification based on that. Canada has not taken that you know, big step in government. Uh, we have a distributed federated um, uh, system with provinces having birth data and federal government with uh, immigration data. So this is a non-trivial problem. The U.S. has the same problem and some other countries have the same problem. Uh, we don't have a national ID card like some European Union countries do. We don't have uh, any, any regulatory or legal requirement to go to a police station and report when you're 16 to register for a service like some countries do. Um, so all of those things are, are leaving us in a position of, in part, relying upon the private sector. Um, historically, we've been relying upon credit bureaus and the like for identity verification, but we're relying upon private sector companies to help fill the gap. Even government organizations are trying to leverage that. But then I think over time, these are going to converge. Governments will be able to expose more information uh, with user consent and control in order to improve their own identity insurance and coupled with private sector data, I think this will become a very powerful um, environment over time. And arguably, because we've had to rely on this federated model of both public sector and private sector, and because we've had to think more about privacy up front between those different entities, potentially Canada has a, a, a leadership position there on, on thinking through privacy and data distribution in ways that other countries maybe haven't faced. Yeah, and that, that's very true. Uh, most of the countries that are quote-unquote ahead of us on some of this, these national IDs and such, you know, are in markets where either privacy is not as big a deal because they're more autocratic or, you know, type uh, governments. The, the governments have the information locked up tight for public sector purposes only. Uh, you know, there's a balance here that's trying to be struck here of, you know, how, how do you um, expose data in a secure fashion and correlate it so that people can assert their identity online based on factual um, validated and verified information and that that's really the conundrum that I think organizations in Canada have both in the private and public sectors how do you um, allow end users to permission exposure of their data f with their consent in a way that everyone can trust
That's a great note to leave on. That's all we have time for in this episode of the Identity North podcast. Please tune in to future episodes in which we're going to explore the very big questions, innovations, and ideas shaping the digital economy in Canada and around the world. You can subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you download your podcasts. Register today for an upcoming Identity North event at identitynorth.ca, and you can connect with us online through Twitter at Identity North or via email at info at identitynorth.ca. I'm Aaron Hamilton. Thanks for tuning in.